Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. There are people whose job it is to calculate risk. Some work on Wall Street, some in the bowels of insurance companies. But now, in the era of coronavirus, it kind of feels like that's everybody's part-time job. One of the things that I've always known, um, and one of the things I studied when I was still in academia getting my PhD in psychology, was just how hopeless the human brain is at probabilities, at statistics. Maria Konnikova was a full-time author before she became a very, very well-compensated risk-taker. And there's a big difference between, say, 50% and 60, and 62 and 70. All of these are hugely different numbers. And yet, when you tell the when you tell a person that, even someone who's a statistician, which I find so amusing, the statistician understands it in theory. But in practice, even the statistician is guided by what we're all guided by, experience. What did your past look like? Are you someone who's experienced this before? Do you know someone who's experienced this before or not? And the way that you're going to interpret statistics is going to be hugely colored by that personal experience. And unfortunately, in the real world, personal experience is never accurate in the sense of being representative. It's a strange coincidence that Konnikova finds herself at a moment in which we're all worried about risk. Because a few years ago, she began an odyssey to help herself understand it. An odyssey that led her places she probably couldn't have imagined. To me, it was just important that I go on this journey. It was supposed to be one year, and I was going to play the World Series of Poker at the end of it. I didn't know what the in-between would look like. Konnikova was, and is, a writer who often contributes to The New Yorker magazine. And this whole poker thing was a book project. The idea was, use poker to understand chance and risk, talk to some of the smartest people studying how those phenomena work, and voila! a book, except destiny intervened. Obviously, it's wonderful and I'm very grateful that I ended up becoming good at the game and skilled enough to to go pro and to actually make money from it and to win um, at major events. But no one knew that going in. When she says she got good, we're talking $300,000 worth of good which was kind of shocking for a writer dipping her toe into the world of poker for a story. Perhaps even more shocking is that by the time her book, The Biggest Bluff, by the time it came out, which was years after it was supposed to come out, the world found itself caught up in a crisis all about understanding chance and risks. Konnikova believes her response to the pandemic was completely altered by what she had learned from poker, She could see the hand we were being dealt before most of us had any idea what was in the cards. In February, I had to make a very big decision um, that stemmed directly out of my experience playing poker. So in February, mid-February, it was becoming clear to a lot of people that this was going to be a big deal. And a lot of people were sounding the alarm. But no one had locked down yet, especially in the United States. And a lot of people were still dismissing it. No one was wearing masks. It was, a, it was still a time of a lot of uncertainty. 
And I actually found myself in New Orleans where um, I was getting a writing award. And in retrospect, I shouldn't have even gone to New Orleans, but I did. And I was supposed to go straight from New Orleans to Los Angeles, where I had some meetings set up and also was scheduled to play in a major poker tournament, part of Mm. the World Poker Tour. And... I remember sitting in my hotel room, looking at the news, looking at the numbers, seeing what was coming out of China, and realizing, wow, this is going to get bad. This looks like exponential growth. This looks like it's actually already here. If we're already seeing the first few cases in the U.S., that means that there are actually many more. Even though the numbers look small now, that's very disturbing, because if you understand exponential growth, you know that that means absolutely nothing. And so I ended up canceling the trip, changing all of my flights, going back to New York, and had not left basically my apartment since then until last week. And now I'm in another apartment, not outdoors or anything like that. But and that was because poker actually enabled me to look at that information in an entirely new light. And the other thing I will say is that as probably a lot of people who are on social media a lot, I try to divide my social media into different threads to make it more manageable. And so I have, you know, my psychologist groups and I have my poker groups and all of this on Twitter. And what ended up happening, if I look back through my timelines, is that the people who understood what was happening the earliest, who started sounding the alarm, who started saying, hey, we need to do something, were the poker players, not the psychologists, not the statisticians. Why do you think it was the poker players that were more concerned? I mean, you wouldn't think uh, uh, that a professional poker player would be particularly concerned about uh, a pandemic, uh, you know, I don't know, arriving in the U.S., maybe you would, but I don't know that they'd be more well, concerned than anybody else. I think anyone should be concerned if you're if you're a human with a heart that there's a yeah. pandemic that's going to kill millions of people. Um, I think the problem was that a lot of people didn't understand. What poker teaches you is to actually think probabilistically, because in poker, you learn from experience. You learn by playing. But unlike life, you're actually sampling probabilities correctly. So you begin to understand, you know, what 10% feels like, what 1% feels like. And Mm. beyond that, you start understanding that 1% is a lot. 1% is huge. It happens Mm. all the time. It's enormous. And so if you see something that has a 1% death rate, you run for the hills. And so the poker players were the first ones to isolate to say, okay, we're stocking up, we're out of here, and saying, we really need to sound the alarm because they actually understood what these numbers meant because of their professions. I'm not saying they're more empathetic people. I'm saying that if you're a, you know empathetic human being who cares about the lives of others, then that should have been your response had you understood the numbers. Most people aren't to blame for not understanding the numbers. It's just not... Our minds don't work that way, but the poker players were able to grasp it before the politicians told us to, before kind of the public health response was putting that message out there. Right. Let's talk for a minute about um, how you got into poker, because I think I'm right in saying this isn't like a lifelong dream, right, to be a pro poker player. (laughs) No, not at all. I mean, I did not know anything about poker up until... Three years ago, up until I started this project, I don't. I didn't care about poker. I've never played games. I'm not even a games player. And by the way, I hate casinos. I still hate casinos. Um, that has not changed at all. And the reason I got into poker was 
totally from from the other side of a lot of poker players who grew up with it. Someone in their family played. They loved games, right. and right. and they kind of came to it that way. I came to it because I was interested in the role that chance plays in our lives. I was interested in exploring the the line between skill and chance and how we can learn to tell the difference between the things we control and the things we don't control. And the reason I came to poker was I started reading about game theory. And I learned that John von Neumann, who is the father of game theory, mm-hmm. was not just a poker player, but that poker was the foundation of game theory. That here was this just polymath, one of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century, also the father of the computer, one of the people who helped invent the hydrogen bomb. I mean, this guy just did it all. And he thought that poker held the key to strategic decision-making just in general. He thought that it could mm. help prevent nuclear war because he thought that this game was actually the perfect model for decision-making in life. It was a game of incomplete information, of knowns and unknowns, of private, hidden stuff, things that only you know, and then things right. that only I know, and then things we know right, in common. Right. And we need right. to make the best decision we can, knowing that we're never actually going to have the puzzle pieces. All we're going to have is our best guess and the information that we've gathered. And we have to make the decision also knowing that there's no such thing as 100%, that mm-hmm. there are elements out there that can go against you, and you need to make the best decision you can. And as long as you do that, the outcome is going to be what it's going to be. It might be good and it might be bad. And you need to learn to separate the two, the process from the outcome. And he thought that these were such crucial skills that being able to model that, being able to understand it on a deep level would basically lead to all sorts of wonderful things um, on the global arena and on the personal arena for human decision making. Mm-hmm. And he didn't like games like me. You know, He thought that chess was boring because it could be solved, because chess was actually perfectly solvable, give you enough computing power and you can always determine the right move. And he said that has no bearing on life. That actually that's not life. In life, you can never see the full chessboard. You don't see all the pieces. You don't see, you don't have perfect information. And you can't figure out what the right move is because there's chance in life in every single decision. In life, there is no decision ever that is 100% certainty. Hmm. That just does not exist. And so I was really intrigued by that. And von Neumann is the reason I decided to take up poker and to write this book. It's interesting. You have a great line in your book. I think it's something like, um, that, like basically people think like, you know, you walk into a casino and, you know, casinos are who knows, sort of like it's all like roulette tables. But you, you say like in poker is this this weird game where you can have a terrible hand and win or you can have a really great hand and lose. And um I'll just say right up front, as somebody who has no idea how to play poker, (laughs) um, do you want to tell me why that is and like why it's different from most of the games in the casino? Well, it's actually different not from most, but from every single other game in a casino. Because in the other games in a casino, you have to have the best of it to win. So if you're playing at blackjack, you can't just decide to bluff the dealer and say, hey, you know, actually I have 21. Can't you see? No, you can only win if your cards are the best. And likewise, you know, roulette, craps, slots, all of these things, you have to actually win to win. Poker, on the other hand, is a game of skill rather than chance. And so 
what you need to do is convince everyone else that you have the best hand. You don't actually have to have it. It's a game of the best player, not of the best cards. And so to me, the biggest proof that it's a game of skill and not a game of chance is that I can win holding the worst hand if I'm the stronger player. And if I have the best hand and someone else is a better player, then maybe they can actually get me to fold the best cards. And it's very interesting. Some economists did an analysis of online poker of hundreds of thousands of hands, and they found that the best hand, so the best two cards, on average won 12% of the time, which means that 88% of the time it was the best player. And so that's, it's really, it's all about how well you play and not what's being dealt. And I think that that's such a great analogy for so many things in life. Hmm. So as you're doing this, as you're becoming a better player, as you're in all these tournaments, are you also reading studies about like, you know, should you be looking at people's faces? Should you be looking, you know, what's the best way to uh, try to understand whether somebody's bluffing, somebody's not? Are you sort of also, you know, uh, going down the sort of academic path of how do you learn about people? Oh, absolutely. Um, And I brought a lot of that with me um, in the sense that I have a PhD in not just in psychology, but I studied decision making under risk and uncertainty. So one of the people I had a chance to talk to and whose research ended up featuring not just in the book, but in my own playing was a Columbia University psychologist named Michael Slepian, who actually studied bluffing and poker and how we can learn to tell if someone is strong or not. And he learned by looking at just thousands of data points that it's not in the face, it's actually in the hands, that you should be looking at hands to determine whether someone is strong or not. And he was able to show this with people who had never played poker before, who were like me at the beginning of this project. He had them look at videos from the World Series of Poker, and he had three different conditions. In one of them, people just looked at the full video where you could see everyone from the waist up, which is the way that those videos are normally shown. Then he had them look just at the face, which is what people would normally be doing because that's the poker face. And then he had the really interesting cut where you could just see below basically the elbows. So you only saw the hands and the arms. And it ends up that people who looked at the full video were no better than chance, which is what we would predict because what we actually know from psychology is that people are really, really bad at spotting deception where it's basically a coin flip. It's almost impossible to train people to be better at it. Um, So we're just not equipped for it. So that's that's something that was totally predictable. Something that was very surprising was when people looked just at faces, they actually performed worse than chance. So they were less able to tell if someone was strong or not. And mm. that goes back to the research that shows that we actually make thin slice judgments of faces right away whenever we see someone. Things like jawbones, like eyebrows. We make determinations on someone's trustworthiness, on their aggression, based on facial features, even in the absence of any other data. And so people were looking at the wrong things. When we look quickly at faces, we come to the wrong conclusions, which is very, very important to remember, by the way, for for any interactions, not just for poker. So they, they did horribly. But then the people who only looked at the hands suddenly improved, and they were able to predict with above chance accuracy 
whether someone was actually strong holding good cards mm. or whether they mm. were bluffing. And it was something in the movement, in the smoothness of the movement, in how the movements were executed, how people held their hands, how they held their chips, mm. how they held their cards. Mm. You could actually tell, even if you knew nothing about poker, whether someone was strong or not. And by the way, there has been research since then outside of the poker world that shows that hands are really predictive um, on knowing when to trust someone, for instance, in Legos with Lego pieces. You can tell if someone's going to help you or not by looking at their hands. In rugby, if you just look at footage of hands, people who don't play rugby are able to tell what direction the ball is going to go. So hands are really just this fascinating reservoir of information. But it also speaks to the fact that kind of like what you were saying before, that people assume they know more than they do know, because I think so many people think, well, that person looks really honest. Or you think about a person on a witness stand, you probably can't even see their hands. You're look, What are you looking at their face? And so this notion that we actually are terrible at judging honesty or dishonesty from faces, I don't know, probably not a good sign. No, it's not a good sign. I mean, we are just bad at spotting deception almost on any measure. That's why we still don't have a a good predictive lie detector tests. That's why all lie detector tests are so incredibly flawed. And I've looked at a lot of these technologies, not just your typical lie detector, but I've looked at people who are trying to use neural imaging, all sorts of these new highfalutin techniques. None of them are none of them are working right now. Hmm. One of the things I found really interesting is that people in professions that where they have to take risks is that very often uh, people who are former poker players are good in those professions. You 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 tell this story about um, a guy who was like a star poker player and then went into real estate and did really well. And and one day made a mistake in, in hiring. Do you want to tell that story? <laughs> sure. Um, and this is a story that we can attribute to Dan Harrington, who was one of the greats of poker, won the World Series main event, so actually a world champion poker player. And he retired from poker and has been running his own real estate investment business for, for a while. And he would usually hire people from the, from the poker world or the backgammon world because he was also a backgammon player. So okay. we started this conversation by talking about probabilities, about risk understanding and statistics and how playing these sorts of games actually teaches you what they mean. And so that really translates well to investing. Well, one time he decided, hey, you know, I don't have to always rely on this. Look at this person's resume. It's stellar. They have so many wonderful things going for them. Let's hire them. And it ended up that this person just did horribly and had no understanding, no real understanding of risk and was making bad decisions just the way that most traders do. By the way, there's uh, very good data that traders are much more like gamblers, i.e. roulette players or craps players, than they are like poker players. Um, Daniel Kahneman has shown that they are just gambling and they don't understand how bad their decisions are, that they usually are underperforming the market and there's no correlation between how they do at one moment and in another moment. That's an aside, but that that's actually what Dan Harrington ended up finding through personal experience. And he had to let this person go and said, wow, if I ever hire a non-games player again, just hit me because um, <laughs> it will be such a stupid decision. Um, what? So that's really interesting to me about like the stock market or, or trading and finance. What 
make somebody better who is a poker player than somebody who uh, well has a background in finance and you would think, well, of course, they're going to be the better investor than the poker player. What is it that the poker player has like ice water in their veins? Like, what is it no, that is it's, going it's on under, It's the understanding of risk and probabilities. It's the fact that you've actually been learning to separate the decision process from the outcome over and over and over, and you're not outcome-oriented. You realize that all you can focus on is your thought process, because poker allows you to learn these things, allows you to learn what different risks feels like, allows you to learn probabilities, allows you what it means to get your money in, you know, as a 75% favorite and have that 25% happen, which is, which is going to happen a lot. 25% is a lot. Um, right. And allows you to, to actually do that, get that feedback, learn from it and figure out, okay, well, this is how I improve my decision process. And this is how I evaluate whether this was a good decision or not. In the stock market, you never learn that because it's it's too noisy. It's too messy. You never actually have to calibrate your probabilistic thinking. And so, and you are results oriented. And so you find that traders will oftentimes when they start losing a lot, they'll, they don't want to lock in their losses. And the, so they end up making bad decisions when they've gained a lot, they want to lock in those gains. Um, and yeah. so they end up making bad decisions. They end up over trading. Poker players know that actually those losses and gains means mean nothing. That's just noise. If I, if the process, if the fundamental valuations, if the, my reasoning is sound, then I should not be trading anymore. I've already made the decision. Let it ride out until whatever I kind of wanted to have happen happens. And so they are not only more patient, but they are so much better at being able to just completely divorce themselves from that bottom line, which mm. a lot of investment professionals just cannot do. It's too mm. emotional for them. And they've never been trained to do that. By the way, any investment professionals who are listening to this will probably be nodding their heads and say, yes, but that's not me. <laughs> that does not apply to me at all. I've yet to meet one who says, yep, that's me. That's exactly how I think. <laughs> um, you write about the political forecaster and the author, uh, Nate Silver. And this kind of speaks to how we digest numbers. And he said before the 2016 election, I believe there's a 71 percent chance of Hillary Clinton winning, 29 percent chance of Trump winning. People kind of went home and were like, OK, well, Hillary Clinton's going to win. And and you, you were saying like poker players, people who understand probability, that is not what they got. <laughs> From that, from that, you know, readout of the information. No, 29% is a lot. I mean, yeah. think, think about it. So, so people just piled on to Nate after this saying, Oh my God, you were so wrong. He wasn't wrong. Just the human brain wants to see certainty. They want to see, Oh, this is the candidate that's winning because, Oh yeah, 70%, we're going to just round it up to a hundred. No, you cannot do that. And I think one of the reasons that Nate Silver is so good at what he does is because he actually used to play poker professionally. <laughs> he understands this incredibly well. I think, you know, maybe he played poker professionally because he understands it one or the other, but his brain works right, right. that way. Right. But yeah, he was just pilloried and he shouldn't have been. It's one of these things where our minds just do not want to deal with uncertainty. We hate it. And it's even worse. So the situation right now, to bring things full circle, mm -hmm. at least here we had known percentages. Currently with the coronavirus, it's not just 
uncertainty. It's also ambiguity because we're not even sure what some of those percentages are. And that just the the human brain just shuts down. And people Mm want to know, okay, well, when will things be back to normal? Give me a date for a vaccine. Give me a date for this. Give me a date for that. And when you say, I don't know, it's uncertain, people just do not want to hear it. So how do you feel I mean, so, you know, here you started playing poker, you turned out to be really good at it, you did all these tournaments. Um, How do you feel like it changed your life? Do you see yourself now as, like, mostly a poker player and a writer on the side? Like, how do you think about how your life has changed because of poker? Well, I think that my decision-making abilities and my thought process and who I am as a person in that sense has certainly changed. I don't see myself as a poker player more than a writer. I will always be a writer, first and foremost. And it's what I've been my whole life, and it's what I love, and it's what what I will always be. But I do now see myself as a poker player as well, and I don't think those two things are incompatible. And it's funny, there are lots of people who've been rooting for me to stop playing poker the moment this book is out, including my grandmother, um, <laughs> think, okay, en- enough is enough, get out of this den of sin and go back to, to doing respectable things. And I'm really hoping that my book helps convince them that poker actually is not just a respectable thing, but something that more people should learn because it gives them so many good tools for being better people. Because I think more rational decision makers are better people because they're able to make choices that aren't self-interested, that aren't as egotistical. Poker also teaches you to be more empathetic because you have to learn to see the world from other people's perspective because you have to understand where they're coming from. You have to understand why they're doing certain things. And yes, the reason you're doing it in poker is so that you can take advantage of them and win. But it's a skill that translates <laughs> to life so that you, yeah. don't know, you no longer have to take advantage of them, but you're still exercising those skills in actually listening to people, figuring out what's motivating them, where they're coming from, what their thinking is. And that's such a wonderful thing to bring to everyday life when you're not trying to play a game and when you're not, when you're in a much more positive sum environment. I think that being able to take these skills away from the poker table can actually make you a much stronger person and a much better person in real life. Hmm. Maria Konnikova is a frequent contributor to The New Yorker. She's also author of the book, The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win. Maria, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure, Kara. You got to know when to hold up. Know when to fold up. Know when to walk away. And know when to run. If you want to learn more about the science and psychology of winning, losing, and doing better than you ever thought you could, I talked recently with author Ben Cohen about the science of streaks. We talked about Steph Curry, about casinos, and of course about The Princess Bride, because why not? That conversation will be at our website, innovationhub.org. Because every hand's a winner, and every hand's a loser and the best that you can hope for is to die